Welcome to Talk Me to Death. I'm your host, Amanda, and I have today with me Laura, a rural social worker in British Columbia. And we have decided today we are going to talk about body farms, not specifically officially called body farms. They are forensic research facilities. Let me see. Research in thanatology is one of the titles that they go by, but most people commonly know them know them as body farms, which would be those locations we see mostly in television and movies where bodies are left to decompose under a variety of natural and unnatural circumstances so that people can study the forensic of how that happens to assist in future body identification and crime solving. So here we go. Let's dive in. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate this. What first sparked your interest in body farms? How did you come to know about them? What do you know about them? I think I probably came to learn about them as most people do, from TV shows, things that I would see there. And I always just sort of thought it was like this really cool idea of how to solve a problem of, you know, when when they find bodies in really bizarre or unique situations, without a body farm, how would they ever be able to estimate things like how long that body has been there or what the what are the forces that act on that body? Without body farms, I just don't know how they would ever be able to figure that out. Yeah. I think in our culture, in Western culture, I think we're very weird about death and I think very weird about bodies. And I think body farms are just this really cool, purely science-based process where, you know, it's not, has nothing to do with beliefs, it has nothing to do about religion, just has to do with, I need to figure out what a body that's wrapped in a carpet and left in a Buick, (laughs) how that's going to decompose. So I think that that's really cool i mean body farms have only really been around i say since like the 70s is when the first one started i want to say at the university of tennessee you might want to fact check that so uh 1971 university of tennessee you are correct yeah (laughs) so i mean they haven't really been around that long i mean really we're looking at like 50 years and obviously when they first started it was like one weird professor in tennessee doing it so (laughs) I don't think by any means we have exhausted all of the the various ways that bodies can be left. Uh, so I think there's still a lot of a lot of data and information that can be learned. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I definitely that's I've mentioned it before. That's the whole reason behind this podcast is I think that we we tend to really tiptoe around the reality of death and dying. Mm. And you know, I, I think that there's there's a lot to be discussed, a lot to be learned a lot to be considered around that. And it, it, it is, you know, an inevitable part of, of everyone's lives. And unfortunately, you know, in, in the case of, of forensic research, you know, people do die in a, in a variety of unexpected, unusual, tragic sometimes circumstances. And I, I think it's, it is, you know, not only the crime solving, but I also think that it is a really interesting field of study to, to provide closure for the living. Mm-hmm. Right, so, yeah. someone that you know and love dies, and you don't know how or why. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have the scientific research to to backdate that and and get a bit of a story, it's certainly not going to make the death less painful, but it might give you, you know, some some closure, some context, which I think is is also an interesting idea. So, when you first mentioned that you want to talk about body farms, 
I did a little bit of looking because you had said that they were starting one in Canada. So as of spring, I think it was 2020, we have our first forensic research facility of this nature in Canada, in Quebec. And it's actually interesting because uh, it is, it's definitely scientific. So it talks about how they're going to, you know, look at the physical decomposition of the body itself, how flora and fauna, insects, things like that interact with bodies in various states of decomposition. They talk specifically about how, you know, Canada is uh, as far as a, a biological climate, uh, very different than most of the other sites where these these sorts of facilities are located. So how, you know, it'll really help Canadian forensics mm. specifically. Are they just, they're just operating like specifically within Quebec or are they yes. operating like in all different parts of Canada? Yeah. So it sounds like there is a plan and I really couldn't find a lot of information about it. It sounds like there is a plan to eventually open one for sure somewhere in Western Canada and possibly one on the East Coast because again, very different climates. Canada is mm. so large. Right. Yeah. right now, it's strictly Quebec and only residents of Quebec can choose to donate just because of the interprovincial transport mm-hmm. you know, complications and, and you know legal aspects. Shipping a body is shockingly hard across interprovincial uh, yeah i can i can imagine so the thing i thought was really interesting about the quebec program though is that they specifically have from the get-go planned to also include the humanities mm. as as participants in the facility and the research that goes on there so uh, they say that they want to act as a catalyst for philosophical anthropological historical social and artistic exploration of topics such as death dying decay body donation and the post-mortem cadaver that actually i think is really interesting what is there i wonder what the artistic side of it is all the other ones i'm like yeah humanities yes anthropological like all those really make sense the art thing is interesting I mean, you know, I, I, I certainly could see art probably being, if you found the right artist or artists, I, I certainly could see potentially death being, you know, a, a point of inspiration, mm-hmm. you know, uh, ways for people to explore the act of dying, the grieving yeah. process. Will they be involved in the actual, you probably don't know this, but are they going to be involved in the actual body farm itself or just as a whole sort of death research? Um, it- it sounds to me like they will be involved in the body farm itself, but I, I'm not totally clear. There, there's some information on on the site, of course. You know, trying to be politically correct and respectful. It's it's very general, and also because the facility is located in Quebec, some of it doesn't translate very well. Mm, right. Um, so when you at, when you ask for the English version, I some of it didn't actually make a lot of sense on your on the Google Translate. <laughs> yeah, and then of course it's a training too. They're going to use it as a training facility for, you know, pathologists, um, archaeologists, forensic scientists, fire investigators, military cadaver dogs, search and rescue teams. Like they really they have a massive, massive mm-hmm. plan for it. That's super interesting. Yeah, it is. It is really cool. I wish that they were doing something. When you speak about the the unique sort of topography and, and geology of, of Canada as opposed to the States or anywhere else in the world, it makes me really curious about what the effect like when you look really far north like tundra wise mm-hmm. like i wonder what the effects of like leaving a body out on the tundra is like how long does it take you know a polar bear to come chew your face off or how long does it take for like your body to desiccate to the point that you're a mummy yeah that's super interesting i mean w- when you stop and think about it honestly if if this is the the sort of research that is uh, if this sort of research is useful to all these different disciplines mm-hmm. i mean some of these until i read the 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 summary sheet for the new canadian facility I would never even 
Mm, we'll have the curves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, but then you hear it, you go, oh, yeah, of course, that's a great idea. Yeah. But then, then you start to go, okay, well, yeah, you really should kind of have these everywhere because there are so many unique climates and microclimates and, and whatnot around the world. And why do you think they don't? Like, is it, a, is it a cost thing? Is it a gross factor? My guess would probably be both. I, I, would, I, I can't imagine these facilities are, you know, cheap to run. For one thing, they have to have massive security. I mean, if you look, they've got a little, uh, little plan here. There's like a 2.5 meter high security fence, surveillance cameras around the entire perimeter, LED lighting, extra electrical fence. There's on-site security. Like it's, it's, there's, you know, power lines and buildings and it's, it's quite, it's quite intensive. And is all that to keep people out or to keep Absolutely. people? Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that seems to be consistent across all the different sites that I've looked at is only people who are actually conducting active projects on right. the site are allowed in. Right. Because they have to be able to control. Obviously, not only do you not want people bringing in random stuff to, to mess up your experiments, but I mean, who knows from a pathology standpoint what's in the bodies or what's on the bodies and you'd have to be careful about all that. Yeah. I, I think a lot of it has to do with yeah biological safety. I also think a lot of it has to do with because they, they want, they need people to donate to these facilities. They can't just take bodies from wherever. No, it has to be a voluntary thing. The the whole respect factor. Mm-hmm. You know, right. I, I think that, you know, again, people are really uncomfortable with death. They're uncomfortable with the concept of it. They're uncomfortable with thinking about it, talking about it, looking at it. Um, and so the idea of, again, it's, it's, you know, it's for the living. The idea of someone that you love being like, yeah, I want them to lay my body out in the woods and let the bugs have at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's probably really hard for some people to stomach. So I think keeping it as shrouded as possible to encourage ongoing participation is probably really important. Probably. Yeah. I also think that there's a weird, how do I want to call, phrase this? Pornography of death. Although people yeah, are are disturbed by it and uncomfortable with it, then that kind of creates this sort of flip side, unhealthy obsession, fascination that can, I think, become quite intrusive. So I think yeah. I th- think the idea of avoiding like death tourism <laughs> yeah, is probably a good thing. Is yeah. probably is yeah. probably a factor. I've been surprised because I mean I've told I I am younger. I mean I'm 34, but I've been very clear with my family like when I die. If possible, I want them to donate as many organs or whatever, retinas and skin and bone and all that stuff. Obviously, there are some very specific circumstances from which you can donate and which mm-hmm. you can't, and circumstances of your death, etc. But I've been very clear, like, that's my first choice. And, and if that choice isn't an option for a bunch of those reasons, then my second option would be to donate my body to science. So far, my family has actually been... I mean, granted, my family's not religious in any way, so mm-hmm. they, they don't have any religious objections to what I want but so far my family has been pretty accepting of like okay that's what you want to do that's your you can do that with your body I don't know if they'll actually follow through with it like if I died tomorrow I don't know if they would Mm -hmm. actually be able to follow through with it but so far they have told me that they will yeah and I guess I'm gone so what do I I don't yeah yeah no it it is it's I I think I think it's fantastic that you that you have had the conversations already with your family and, and and that they're supportive because you know one thing that that you do frequently see and again I I understand but it's it's difficult is you know people express wishes while they're alive they pass away and it's true they no longer have any influence or or uh, skin in the game but uh, that, <laughs> <Literally>. <laughs> early <laughs> but then their family doesn't follow through with their wishes and that always makes me a little bit sad 
little bit sad and also it's it's I mean, granted, like I said, I, I don't believe in an afterlife. Like, I don't believe that you go to heaven and are watching down on, on your family. So you, you would never know. Mm-hmm. What I see more often uh, as a social worker is that people just don't even have these conversations at all. Right. And then their families are left when when they're when their dad dies. They're left when I ask them, like, what did he want? And did he want to be cremated or buried? And they're just like, we don't know. Yeah. And, and I'm like, OK, <laughs> this seems it's, it seems like such a bizarre concept to completely willingly ignore the inevitable. Yeah. We're all going to die at some point. That's an irrefutable fact. Why wouldn't you have a five minute conversation at some point with someone about what you want or don't want? Yeah. But a shockingly large percentage of people no, don't have those absolutely. conversations. It just... Or when you ask them, they say, I don't know, or yeah. I don't care, yeah. or, or whatever. And so they end up getting you know, buried in the family graveyard just because they've never expressed anything other than that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, it's actually funny. I was going to ask you about kind of, you know, how, how you find your conversations around death in the, in the line of work that you do. So that sort of addresses like the idea of those left behind and, and some of the things that you see there. But how do you find having conversations with people who are still alive about death? How, how does that play out in general in your line of work? For the most part, I mean, I mean, if I'm talking to them about death, one of two things is happening. Either they're super old and that's just a coming or they've been diagnosed with something with right. cancer or ALS or, or whatever, MS, a variety of things. I'm, I'm generally not talking to them about it. If it's a diagnosis-based conversation, I'm generally not talking to them about it right off the hop mm-hmm. unless it's like super, super, super imminent where like the doctor saying, this person's, you know, going to be dead within a month. Mm-hmm. For the most part, I try and give people a little bit of time to, to wrap their head around their own mortality and, and what's going to happen before I start having those conversations. Those ones, actually, I find the conversations are a little bit easier because they have a concrete, like the doctor has said to them, this is terminal. You right. are going to die from this. This cancer is going to kill you. Ironically, I find that just seniors in general are harder conversations because for some reason... It's easier for them to live in denial where right. they're where they're like, well, I'm only 80 or like I've had people say to me like, well, I'm only like 92. And I'm like, <laughs> right, you are 92. So like how long? Like, yeah. and, and I try sometimes when people are a little bit in that denial phase or they or they haven't really thought about it or don't want to think about it. I've done the thing where I sort of ask them, like, you know, how long do people live in your family? And like, what do you think will happen when you die? Or do you foresee yourself, you know, dying in a hospital? Do you want to die at home? I try to give people, I don't want to give them the answers to the questions. I just want to give them a ton of questions to sort of get their gears going. Yeah. To So that they can think about really what they want. And I don't think in the modern medical system, I don't think we have enough conversations about that. I don't think that we have enough conversations about Often in the medical world, we, we talk a lot about, you know, heroic measures and, and do you want us to shock you and do you want us to do CPR and we do all of those things, but we don't necessarily talk about like, what do you want for your quality of life? Right. If you can't do X, are you done? And I mean, for me, it's, it's like, if I can't read, like if I can't like sit up and read a book, I am checking out, like I'm, I'm not interested in, in being around anymore. I find we don't really have those conversations. Right. 
yeah, I've, I've mentioned that I'm I'm in healthcare and yeah. How do you find it as a nurse to to have like? Do you find that you have those conversations? No, no. I mean, and part of that has to do with with the, you know the fact that most of my nursing experience has been in emergency care. So either you know if, if people if people die in emergency, it's generally quick and unexpected. Mm-hmm. Or it's just not, it's just not the place you're doing something very episodic. They come, they've come in with a broken arm or something like that. And, and you just, you don't have that kind of long mm. relationship with them. I have worked some in, in, in primary care, as you know, and I think that there is a, a lot of lost opportunity there. You know, again, nursing care often tends to end up being quite episodic, uh, more, more so than I would, I would prefer. It's sort of the nature of how our system's set up. Hmm. And and honestly, even even medical care, you know, with with other practitioners tends to to often be quite quite episodic, simply because the way that uh, healthcare is financed, the you know the demand for healthcare providers' time, as far as you know, trying hmm. to cover a large number of patients, and and just you know, honestly, the uh, the emotional and mental and physical burnout that that comes with you know kind of constantly like taking in other people's problems and concerns mm-hmm. and so you know we're not taught and i've i've mentioned this before we're not taught very well how to how to deal with that and how to take care of ourselves for that and so i i think that you tend to just you know, focus on okay i can do like this right now what's in front of me right which is certainly not ideal. I, I do definitely wish that we made more time to have those kind of long arching conversations mm-hmm. about health in general, quality of life, yeah. long-term planning, you know, expectations, wishes, desires, fears, goals, you know, all those sorts of things. It's it's not something that we dive into as much as, as we could by a long shot. And I think that there are probably a, a lot of healthcare practitioners who tend to think of it as like airy-fairy, touchy-feely mm. stuff that sure. maybe is less important than actually getting the things done that people need which is an easy trap to fall into because again you know if if you're having a conversation with someone may or may not do anything but Mm -hmm. setting a broken bone putting a band-aid on starting an iv those you're like look i did something for this person yeah so it's easy to kind of automatically uh, gravitate towards those sorts of things right Oh, okay. So, so body donation. So, if mm. you were to donate your body, mm-hmm. or when you donate your body, I guess I should say, because theoretically mm. there should be a facility available. Hopefully, <laughs> at this at this point, it's more of an if, but hopefully. Um, do you have a particular area that, if you could choose, you would hope your your body went towards? I mean, like I said, my my priority would be donation, like mm-hmm. like organ donation, et cetera, because that can. I mean, the, the, um, I cannot understate the impact of, you know, a kidney donation or a liver donation on somebody's quality of life. But if that's not an option for a whole bunch of reasons, after that, I mean, I really honestly, I was talking to my sister about it this morning because I was uh, telling her that I was doing this today. And I was just like, I don't care. Like right. if my body ends up in a medical school for, for doctors to chop apart and look at all your insides and practice suturing cool like if it ends up on a body farm and i end up like i don't know putting plastic bags and submerged in a swamp doesn't bother me right it's funny because that is like her (laughs) that is literally my sister's nightmare my sister wouldn't even when i first had kids my sister flat out told me if your kids ever needed a kidney i'm not doing it like she is very against she's not against like organ donation as a concept yeah but she wants like zero involvement 
in any part of that. Yeah. And she would also never accept, like if she if she needed a liver transplant, she would never accept it. Okay. She is hard no on, on all of that. So the fact that I'm like, yeah, whatever. I mean, chop up my body, put it in some yeah. garbage bags, toss it in a swamp. It absolutely makes her skin crawl. She does uh, not like it It's actually funny you say that. Years and years ago, God, 20, over 20 years ago. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, had the opportunity to donate bone marrow, mm, which cool. as far as donations go is like super low key. <laughs> you know, they, isn't it painful? You know, I, I was quite young at the time and I didn't, I, I was in like my early 20s, uh, late teens, early 20s. So I was pretty resilient. They, they stick a bunch of, they knock you out and stick a bunch of big needles mm. into some large bones and take bone marrow out and then right. pass it along. It, it was achy. It kind of felt like I'd maybe fallen down and bruised myself on the ice or something. They took they took mine out of the back of my pelvis. I really, I I didn't find it invasive at all. Cool. Uh, or, or particularly onerous. It was interesting to me though going through the process because they're so they're so adamant about the the donor's right to change their mind at any time. Again, they don't mm. want to discourage anybody by making them feel trapped. Right. Almost to the point where. It almost felt like they were like second guessing me, <laughs> like literally up till I was laying on the table. They were about to put me to sleep. And they're like, are you sure you're good with this? We're going through with it. And I was like, yeah, I'm here. Right. I'm laying naked Why? on a table in front of you. <laughs> Why else would I be here if I wasn't? It's, into it's this? like four o'clock in the morning because you do it after hours and in spare OR space. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the thing about the what brought that up was the thing that, that really I found interesting and actually caught me off guard was I actually had a couple of family members who were like, you know, I'm happy that that you're doing this nice thing, but also I don't think people should do this. They, you shouldn't, people shouldn't donate things back and forth. And it, I'd never, it had never occurred to me that that wouldn't be something that everybody I knew wouldn't be right. on board with. Yeah. I mean, and they weren't, they didn't try and stop me. They weren't, you know, rude or, or about it or anything. But I was just, just the idea that they were like, yeah, I don't think people should do this. I was like, what? And why not? Like, what's their reason? I could not really get a very good explanation. Hmm. for it it was just a no you know people's bits are their own and if you have something then suck it up and deal with it mm. was sort of the impression i got i mean um, i think that that's a really i think that that's a really easy perspective to have when your kid's not dying of leukemia yeah i guess i think that that's a really like not not i don't want to i don't want to undermine their opinion because it's their body and they have a right to do course. whatever they want with it i for some reason i understand it more when people have like a religious objection mm -hmm. where I'm like, okay. And again, I'm really not religious and I really don't want to offend people, but like, okay, you believe in this like made up stuff that says you can't do it. And you believe in that and you have faith in that. And that tells you that you can't do it. Okay, fine. I mean, I think, you know, religion is a, is a huge uh, faith leap anyways. And so to, you know, believe that there's this guy, Jesus, however many thousands of years ago, it's a similar leap to like, and he says, I can't give you my stuff. Right. Okay, fine. For people that don't have, a, like even with my sister, for people that don't have a religious objection, it is so hard for me to wrap my brain around because I'm literally just like, but why? Mm -hmm. Like, I have lots of bone marrow. My body makes it all mm -hmm. the time. Even even as far yeah, as... you recover fully in like, well, I mean, besides the pokey bits, you yeah. recover your bone marrow in like, I can't remember what, it's just like something crazy, like two weeks or something yeah, exactly. back to normal. Or like donating blood, like hair. I make, my body makes blood all the time. Yeah. When... My great grandmother was had O negative blood, mm -hmm. and she lived in a really small town. She lived actually in Trail, BC. And when when they would get an accident at the hospital, they the hospital would just call her in the middle of the night and be like, "Hey, Mary, 
you come uh, donate some blood real quick? We'll, uh, we've, already, we've already sent a cab to your house. It should be there in like three minutes. And my grandma would be like, okay. And she'd like <laughs> throw on some clothes and like zoom over to the hospital and donate some blood. That's incredible. I love it. Because she was just like, whatever. Like yeah, I have it. I you need it. Yeah. I d- will make more. Yeah. This isn't going to kill me or harm me in any way, really, other than like some minor discomfort for five minutes. And yeah. you can literally save somebody's life. Do you know where your blood marrow went or what the condition was? I do, actually. I've long since lost contact, but um, there's a a required waiting period. Pretty sure it was a year after the donation took place. And then if both the donor and the recipient Mm -hmm. agree, then the um, donation agency will help facilitate an exchange of information and so that you can make contact. But the the deal is, is that, you know, if either party says no, then obviously it doesn't happen. And and you, at the outset, are informed of that and have to agree that that is okay if that's the way it goes. Right. And so ultimately, um, we did end up both agreeing to to exchange information. And I had been allowed to send a small gift with, it had to be something super neutral. I couldn't write a note or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It just had to be a a thing if I wanted that I could send with the donation when it went mm. to the person. So I had chosen like a small, it was it was a little angel. I'm not particularly religious either, but it just seemed appropriate. A little angel that I sent along with it. So yeah, the year passed and we both agreed. And I did actually end up emailing and, and talking a couple times on the phone with the woman who had received my bone marrow and then eventually was able to have one in-person meeting with her. Talked a little bit with her husband and with uh, emailed a little bit with with a couple of her adult children as well. She was sixty nine, I believe. Hmm. And why did she need your bone marrow? She had leukemia. Mm. She was sixty nine when she had re- had received my bone marrow. And it was interesting to to hear the other side of it. A, she swore that she had known from the outset that she'd gotten bone marrow from another woman because of the figurine I'd sent. She said, "No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough." She also swore at that point I was still working uh, full time in the arts uh, as a professional stage manager. And she swore that after her and before I had even told her what I did, mm-hmm. she swore that after her procedure, when she received the bone marrow, that she had taken to disliking meat because I was a vegetarian and that she was far more interested in art and theater than she ever had been before. I, and I don't know if that's real or not, yeah. but. But it was it was an interesting concept. Yeah. And it was I was very young and I didn't have a lot of, of worldly experience. And it was it was a really like crazy emotional thing, far more impactful than I expected when we did make contact. And we didn't maintain contact over the long term. It was it was a bit of a flurry of, you know, thank yous for an extension yeah. and and you know, a bit of an exchange of personal information. Then we just kind of both went our went on with our lives. She was based in um, Ontario. Mm. And this was, you know, well pre Facebook and all that fun stuff. So, but it was, it was, it was really interesting. But it was also interesting to hear from her because I I had talked to her about how it was, it was so intense how they kept double checking that I was sure I wanted to do it. Like right up to when I was literally on the table. And she said, well, that was so fascinating because by the time I was on the table, she'd already had, been completely irradiated. If I had changed my mind at that point, oh. she would have died because sh- they were prepping her to receive the donation. And you, they didn't tell you that? No, no, of no, course no. not. I would want to know. <laughs> like, I, I get, I, I get that they don't, that they don't tell you for a reason and they don't want you to feel pressured. Like, you would, you would never want to, someone to feel like they were backed into, like, mm-hmm. donating an organ or donating blood marrow or anything. But on the other hand, like, if I was seriously considering backing out, 
I would want to have that information. Like, if you back out, this is what will happen. How can you make a decision without all the information about the possible consequences of that decision? I just think that that must be just absolutely terrifying to be like, okay, we're going to irradiate you. We're going to completely erase your immune system. And then hopefully this other person kind of comes through and, and, you know, maybe they will and maybe they won't. Ooh, no. (laughs) I mean, I guess, I guess you honestly, you don't have a choice in that moment, but like that's intense. Yeah. 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 Would you do it if you going through that whole process, would you do it again? Oh, yeah. If someone asked tomorrow? Yeah. Bone marrow, honestly, it was so easy. It, I, yeah, it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be difficult to do at all. I'd totally do it again. I actually tried, I tried to donate part of my liver at one point too. This is sort of off topic, but um, I had to have uh, liver surgery for something that was going on with me that was completely benign. It wasn't anything that was going to cause me long-term problems, but it had to be dealt with. And so I had asked the surgeon, I was like, um, because the surgeon I happened to be seeing was also the head of the liver transplant program mm. for British Columbia. <laughs> so I was like, when I was doing my my pre my pre surgical uh, appointments, I was like, so if you're going to be in there anyway, do you want to just right. like take a little piece and give it to someone? Is that is right. that something you can do? Is that helpful? <laughs> I don't know that I would offer to do it like just for that reason. Please chop me open with a yeah, giant yeah. abdominal yeah. incision and take a piece of my liver. But I was like, you're already going to be in there, right? So um, just. Yeah. Anyhow, they turned me down. They said it was it it added too many layers of complication because of of also having to deal with what they were in there for originally, mm-hmm. and if anything had gone sideways with that, and anyhow, and, and already having a transplant team on standby and stuff, it would have really mucked things up. Fair enough. But I was like, well, mm. you know, it's worth a shot. Yeah. <laughs> well, and especially because so I've considered live donation of either a kidney or part of your liver. I've considered liver just because, I mean, it grows back. So, like, there's, like, yeah. zero. I don't know. I don't know how long it takes to grow back. But regardless, after a certain period of time, there's zero impact to you other than, obviously, a, a scar. And then the other part of it is because I'm allergic to alcohol, I don't drink. I don't do drugs. Like, I, my liver's pretty, pretty primo. My lungs are kind of shit, but my liver's pretty good. <laughs> or I've thought the same thing about, like, uh, uh, to donate a kidney. Yeah, yeah. I've been surprised at my family members who have been, because he- I've talked about that openly, like, yeah, I would have no, if someone told me tomorrow, like, hey, John down the street needs a kidney and you're a match, I'd be like, okay, yeah, like, that's yeah. fine. Uh, I've been surprised at the feedback that I've gotten from family members who have just been like, well, like, then you'll only have one kidney. I'm like, yeah, people only lots of people kidney. only have one kidney. Like, that's, I don't think that that's medically an issue, especially because I don't have diabetes. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't. I'm not particularly hard on my kidneys, I don't think. Yeah, they well that's, that's that's not a medical opinion. That's just a <laughs> idea that I have about my kidneys, which is a weird thing to have. But then the the feedback that I've gotten is once I say that, then they say like, yeah, but like what happens if something happens to one of your kidneys and now you don't have any kidneys? I'm like, well, then that'll suck, I guess. Yeah. Like, or then I whatever. Well, then I'll go on the, on the donation yeah, list and yeah. it's not a... Well, like that's not enough of a that's not enough of a theoretical thing to happen that maybe I don't need a kidney and then maybe 10 years later maybe something happens that decimates my other kidney like that's too many ifs for me yeah. but yeah so I've never I've never really gone down the road of that but it's definitely something I'm considering for like maybe the next couple of years because yeah. like I got I got an extra one. Yeah, it's fine to to see people who have to live on dialysis oh, is terrible. insane. Terrible. Especially if you like are young or you have a family, like it just takes up 
the the amount of time that you have to spend doing it is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, it's it's yeah, it's it's no way to live at all. No. No. Um, Sneaking back around to mm. the body farms again. So I have another question. Mm. So if you could be an active participant as a living person in a body farm, yeah. what aspect of the various things that they might study would interest you most? Uh, probably the rate of decomposition in various circumstances. Right. Like I, yeah, to, to figure out, you know, how long it takes for a body to decompose and sort. I think that would be super interesting. Tracking the various, you know, like how long does it take for flies to arrive? How long does it take for maggots to develop? How long does it take for whatever your, your stomach to explode? That kind of stuff I would find super interesting. Mm -hmm. I am pretty good that I, I mean, I have little kids. I don't, I don't have a strong gag reflex and like gross smells and stuff are just kind of a, a part of my life so I don't think that the smell factor would be a problem right. that being said I've never been around a decomposing body so maybe I would get there and then just be like you know this is not for me you know actually this the smell of of uh decomposing flesh it's I mean it's certainly not pleasant but yeah. it's actually not as bad as you might think well and then I also I also grew up on a farm mm-hmm. and so right. like right. A, a lot of like gross smells and and rotting things mm-hmm. and you know, when I was little and, like, my grandpa would, like, butcher a pig and they would, like, leave all the guts on the ground for the dogs to eat. Like, that it never bothered me. So, yeah, I don't think that, that I would have a, a visceral reaction to it. And, I mean, if you're going to be involved in a body farm, why wouldn't you want to be involved in the coolest part of mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Yeah. So that would be my answer. What would you want to be involved in? Or if would you want to be involved at all? Yeah. No. Oh, I, I, I totally think it would be interesting. I, yeah, 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 yeah. See, I... I automatically think research and I've never really wanted anything to do with actually conducting re- <laughs> research. We've had this conversation. Yeah, but is it that you don't want to be involved in research or that you don't want to deal with all the bullshit and paperwork and forms yeah, okay, and okay. like the writing right, part that, of it? That would be it. Because it's but, the re- the <laughs> actual research itself is interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's everything that goes along yeah, with it. That's yeah. nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I actually, I think that, I think probably I'd be on, on board with like the bug thing. The mm-hmm. bugs and uh, bacteria and, and plants mm-hmm. and, and things like that and how those interact right. with bodies in various locations, various times of mm-hmm. year, various mm-hmm. climates. I, th- I think that would be really interesting. I don't know enough about forensic science to know how how much of a help that is at this point. I mean, on television, it always looks like an amazing help, but yeah. we know how accurate television is. Yeah. Yeah, but I do. I I, th- I think that would be a really interesting thing to see. I also actually think it might be interesting, for example, like the Quebec site to mm-hmm. to look at the artistic end of things. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily, that, not necessarily that I would want to do it because I do not consider myself an artist, but to be a fly on the wall and observe mm-hmm. how artists are choosing to interact. To yeah, you know, the direction they choose to go with that as far as what they're looking at, what medium mm. they're using, how involved are they getting with the actual yeah. forensic part of things in order to create their art, all mm. of that. Yeah, I also wouldn't mind, the other part of body farms that would be interesting to me would be to interface with the families, mm-hmm. to be, you know, the the contact person that talks to, you know, the 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 father, the husband, the mother, the sister, the whatever, about their loved one being at the body farm. And I don't know how much people, like, I would want to know. Mm-hmm. Like, my husband does not want to, he does not want to go to a body farm. But if he did, 
let's say he wanted to go to a body farm, I would be super interested. I'd be like, yeah, I want to know. Like, is he like, yeah, is he in a swamp? Like, is he in a in a oil drum all sealed up? Like, I would think that that's super cool to know. Yeah, I think my my feeling, which is not based on anything, is that most families probably don't want to know what is happening to their loved mm-hmm. one. But also, I think that so much of how you feel about that is really dependent on your belief structure around, like, I really do believe, like, when I die, my soul's out of here. Like, I believe my soul goes somewhere, but, like, it doesn't stick around in this sack of meat. Like, this is just meat and and you can do whatever with it. Well, so it doesn't matter. There's no connection. There's no, yeah. So it. I think if you have a different belief structure, obviously that would be more complicated. Oh, 100%. Um, I also suspect that people who have, you know, other more comprehensive belief structures probably Mm. likely don't have their loved ones end up on body farms. Would be my first guess. Probably not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or or even donated to science in general. I I think that people are very, the impression that I've got from people is that they don't want to end up on a body farm. And so even the fact that that might happen dissuades them from going the science route mm-hmm. in general, even though I'm like, you know, you could end up as a, as a cadaver in a medical yeah. school yeah. that they practice. They need them all the time. Well, and the thing, the thing, I mean, it's, it's not as easy as I thought it might be to find information on the various body farms around the world. Again, I think that they're all very circumspect, just, you know, out of respect for the donations they're receiving, Mm. the family members, people's general discomfort with death and the ickiness of dying and decomposition that people probably don't want to face a lot of. They don't have to. I'm sure they don't want to risk, you know, pissing someone off and losing their funding or losing their Mm -hmm. sight or or something like that. So so I there really wasn't a ton of information available if if this podcast goes anywhere i would love to eventually be large enough to attract someone who actually you know is maybe mm. a director of one of those facilities and you know have a conversation directly with somebody right. who knows more about it Ooh, that'd be that so would be cool. really interesting yeah i think it'll be a little while before i get there but hopefully it's a it's a goal if they have like religious base their families will end up on a body oh yeah so the one thing that d- does seem to be fairly consistent from what i could find is that body farm donation is specific yeah, so if you donate is. your body to science, mm-hmm. even here in Quebec, you're not just yep. going to randomly end up on the body farm as part no. of science. You have to say, I want to give myself to yep. bleh. Yeah. So hopefully that should ease some people's minds. But it was also interesting, too, looking um, where I could find information, looking at the variety of different ways that the various sites and facilities deal with donated remains after they've gone through the forensic decomposition mm-hmm. process and, and right. kind of, you know, gotten all they can out of them in that regard. And it, there's quite, it, it's remarkable, just not there's a ton of body farms in the world, but mm-hmm. it's remarkable the variety of different final approaches. Pretty much, not pretty much, none of them allow visits uh, during the, the forensic process. Oh, no. Of course, understandable. Mm-hmm. But right. some of them have like set time limits okay we will keep the body for three years mm, and mm-hmm. then you know uh we will cremate it and mail it back mm. to you or right. we'll yep. do a ceremony and you can come pick it up or some of them um the one i think it's the one in is it tennessee or texas i'll have to double check they go through the the outdoor decomposition process and then the bones are like cleaned and preserved and put into a bone collection 
Mm. So they don't ever actually release the final remains back to the family. But Mm -hmm. once they're in the bone collection, family can visit them in the bone collection if they want Mm. to visit the remains. Yeah. Yeah, and and different time frames that that mm. that places will keep them for and stuff. And it, it's interesting to me. None of them explain at all how they reached. Uh, and I'm sure it was you know a massive lengthy council consensus to to decide on all of their policies because it is a very sensitive yeah. topic. But none of them um, really indicate how they came to decide what their various mm. final right. policies like, like why that processes were, which would be interesting to know. Another reason to try and talk to somebody who works in the mm-hmm. in the field. Yeah. Well, and I wonder what the with the bone collection route, it, like, is there a scientific reason for that that they that they are still getting information from yeah, the bones after the fact? Yes. I okay. really should figure out which one it is. Yeah, I truly can't remember if it's Tennessee or Texas. Mm, that's okay. Anyhow, whichever one it is that has the the bone collection, it's the largest. Mm. I'm pretty sure it's the largest collection of human bones in the mm. world and yeah there's it's still studied because then they know you know this set of bones belong to a 37 year old mm-hmm. caucasian male right. who had once suffered a broken right leg mm-hmm. let's right say. yeah yeah so they cool. have those details already and they have photos of the people right. from when they were alive so apparently the bone collection is used for further forensic learning cool. how to figure out age gender Right. History of injuries based on skeleton, how to uh, do reconstruction, right? So they can Ooh. teach people, you know, here, here these are our reconstruction techniques. Right. Do it off of this this skeleton, and right. then we can check it against the real thing and see how you yeah. do it. Yeah. 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 What an amazing resource. Yeah. It's, it sounds, it sounds fa- again, not something I would have thought of, but it sounds yeah. fascinating. Fascinating and, and also, yeah, I mean, why why wouldn't you want to be... I guess my what it comes down to for me is like, why wouldn't you want to be as useful as you can be even after you're gone? Mm-hmm. And some of these things are only things that they can figure out. I mean, we we haven't figured out a better method no. to get this information. Yeah. This is the best that we've come up with so far to try and figure these things out. So yeah, why wouldn't you want to be a yeah, part of that? It is, it is interesting to me, though, that far and away, the majority of the locations, facilities are in the US. Again, considering mm. there are so many other places in the world with so many other conditions why do you think that is i don't really know i mean obviously it started there the, the right. original what you know was the yeah tennessee so maybe it just hasn't spread yeah i, I mean as quick- I, I wonder if maybe it has more to do with you know varying overarching cultural norms mm. predominant religious beliefs in different areas maybe uh, i mean resources yeah maybe Maybe it's more just about like, like space and money. Yeah, and maybe the U.S. Uh, space. I could imagine is is a is a factor in half of my family. My dad's side of the family is is German, and in Germany, space is at a premium, mm-hmm. and there's way too many people and not enough land. And so in Germany, when it comes to cemeteries, you don't buy your plot; you rent it. Yes, I've heard about that. That's another thing yeah. I talk about. Not mm-hmm. on this one, but at some point. And, yeah, and so when my oh shit, my great great grandparents, when their lease came up, it was a big conversation in our family of like, oh, are you gonna renew? 
well, so is somebody going to pay for this? Or are we not paying for this? Yeah. <laughs> or what's this going to be? And at that point, everyone who knew them, who had any sort of personal connection to them, was gone. My my great aunt was the last one that knew them, and she was dead. And so, and they were also in uh, that particular part of my family was more well off. And so they were not only in the cemetery, but they were in a an expensive part of the cemetery, right <laughs> near the gate with the big trees. So it wasn't like a small amount to to renew the lease. And so, yeah, eventually the consensus was nobody wanted to pay for it. So they get dug up. I'm not sure what they do with the bones after they dig them up. Because, I mean, these people had been buried like 200 years. Yeah. So I'm not sure. Oh, my aunt had been paying for it. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My great aunt had been paying for it. And but when she died, right, no right. one yeah, was yeah, paying yeah. for it. And I don't know if it was like uh, I should ask my parents. I don't know if it was a lease term or if it was like a yearly thing mm-hmm. or like how that works. I think what my impression has been, and don't quote me on this, is that when you don't pay, then they eventually dig you up. They get rid of whatever coffin is mm-hmm. there, and then they put your bones in a, a mass grave, right? Because they kind of got to do something with yeah. them. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely, I think other, especially, say, European countries, it might just be a space issue. Mm-hmm. That's that's why they don't have body farms. Interestingly, the Netherlands, I mean, the Netherlands is mm-hmm. progressive on mm-hmm. so many different fronts. Right. Netherlands actually has a body farm relatively new. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see here. I want to say that maybe it was opened in the last, like, three-ish years. I'm not 100% sure cool. without rereading this article. It's been a little while since mm-hmm. I found it. But what the article does include is a map of wh- roughly where the body farm is. Um, mm-hmm. This is all black and white. You totally can't see it. But it's basically like in this super populated like oh, yeah. downtown oh, yeah. Yeah, area. Yeah. And then here's the university campus. And they've got like this tiny, tiny little corner. Looks mm. like that's the full size of it. Yeah. And they do, they just do it there. It's like, it's cool. something, it's super tiny. It's not even yeah. an acre, I don't think. Like, Which a, like is a still micro a, body farm. Yeah, it's like, it's still a ton of, of, you know, space for an area that densely populated, but, um, but really tiny. Yeah. Well, and I don't know, I don't know what the turnaround is. Like, so if you, I don't know, you, you like encase a body in concrete and you bury it in the ground. I don't know how quickly you could put another body in that same spot without without messing up your data. Like without, yeah. I, w- I would imagine that there's some sort of a, a time period where you need to let the land lay fallow before before it would return to sort of your base yeah. your base levels of, of bacteria yeah, and, so and all So many questions. I mean, who who has yeah. who knows how that works? Because the other thing, well, too, somebody people knows. Are going to people are going to want data at different points so where does their their research um, or investigation stop and then Mm. does somebody else take it over or then you say okay we're done with this one and we're going to start over with something new or how like how does that work how does that work and then how do you i guess my other my other thing that i don't know about body farms is do they like so who comes up with the scenario like are the scenarios based off of like real life stuff so like literally you know they they find a body that's been wrapped up in a carpet and put in a trunk and then they can't figure that out so then they do the body farm thing or are they trying to do the body farm thing beforehand and trying to sort of cover all the scenarios so that they have that data ready when that happens well i i don't i'm not even sure i'm not even clear from the reading i've done how much of it is actually scenario based or if it's just a matter of we're going to set up bodies however however it is they select the way they're set up yeah, I, I, I really, I, do, I don't know if it, if it's like you know in response to specific 
um, historical cases. Mm. I, I, I think probably in some cases it is, but or if it's just a matter of let's collect whatever we can about. Yeah. Well, and because I mean, the summer. Yeah, there must be some overlap. Yeah, you know, like yeah. a body in an enclosed space, whether that space is a trunk or an oil drum, must yeah, to some extent decompose in a similar yeah. manner. There must be quite a bit of overlap. But I think that must be just a fascinating process of like, do you guys just like sit down for lunch one day and you're like, okay, what are we doing this year? Like, what are the, <laughs> what are the thirty scenarios that we're going to try and pull off yeah. this season? Like, what a fascinating. Well, process. and I mean, and how do you do the most with what really probably ends up being fairly limited resources? I know that I think most, if not all, of the body farms, again, based on what little information I was mm-hmm. able to conclusively find do overlap with human remains and animal remains um because there mm. just aren't necessarily that. enough human re- even so even well, the even the re- the largest facility the one in tennessee mm-hmm. only receives about 100 bodies a year which is a lot of bodies but not really that much in the grand not scheme really. of things yeah. so if you think that everyone else is probably receiving way less than that right. how do you how do you cover the most variety mm-hmm. of things yeah. with not necessarily yeah. that many yeah. bits yeah. of material to work with well, I mean, I think, again, something to fact check, I think that, you know, to to use, say, a pig for decomposition is pretty similar. They have similar intestinal tracts. Mm-hmm. They have processes. So, I mean, you could definitely get some information that way. But, yeah, you're obviously trying to maximize, with X amount of bodies, you're trying to maximize the amount of research mm-hmm. and, and data that you can get from that. Yeah. So this is the other article that I found that I thought you'd probably be a good person to talk to about. I, I really, I really only skimmed it. It was more just that the headline kind of tweaked my uh, my thinking mm. process. Uh, mm. The idea of the ethics of body donation, whether it be medical body donation, body farm donation, uh, mm. whatever, after medical assistance in dying. And what was your concern? Well, I, I think the article just in general is talking about the the risk that people will again possibly feel coerced to go ahead and go with their medical assistance and dying if they feel like they could be more useful after they've passed away than they feel right now, or you know if the family's grappling with the idea that someone wants to end their life medically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then also has to grapple with on top of that okay. the idea that their right. body's going to go off and have right. whatever done with it for science or research. It's I, again, I hadn't really thought about it until I tripped across this article. Yeah. That being said, I mean, I think that I think that a body that you would get after a medical assistance in dying is probably like your primo body mm-hmm. because you can control so much about. It. Yeah. So I mean, even when I was talking to one of the doctors that I work with about you know just donating your body to science, and the feedback that I got was, in as in a rural of town as we live in, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, you can basically only donate your body to science if it is if you live in Vancouver yeah. or really a large center. Partially because you just don't have the uh, logistical stuff mm-hmm. here. You know, they're not going to drive all the way to the little tiny town that I live in just to pick up my corpse. So definitely, the benefit of like medical assistance and dying is that you can control for all those factors. Mm-hmm. That there would be no, yeah, it's kind of like an, an untainted sample to some extent. So I would imagine that it's probably ideal from an ethical standpoint. I mean, it gets really, really messy when you talk about somebody being able to consent to something. Consent is such a tricky 
topic because human beings are so diverse and the scenarios that they're in are so diverse that I mean, I don't know how much you can ever really know that someone isn't being coerced mm-hmm. or pushed or, or encouraged into things. And I say that in regards to, to medical procedures. I also say that in regards to like people get coerced into staying at jobs they shouldn't stay mm-hmm. at. They get they get coerced into staying in relationships that they shouldn't stay in. That's a really slippery slope. At a certain point, you have to just say, you know, you've said that you're doing this of your own free will and I have to just believe you on on that realm. But I mean, looping back to, to when you were donating bone marrow, they were checking like over and over and over again. I would imagine that they would be doing a similar process with, with the NBC, with the medical assistance and dying process. They ask you multiple times, mm-hmm. you know, you, you have to give your consent. And then I think it's like seven or 13 or there's a certain time period where you have to give your consent again. Yeah. There's a gap by two practitioners, two different practitioners. And then you also have to give your consent right before the procedure. Again, they ask mm-hmm. you if, if you're sure that you want this. And and that's for the medical assistance in dying, which also has a ton of other criteria around you have to have a condition that is likely to cause death. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't do a medical assistance in dying because you suffer from chronic depression. Yeah. You can't... Um, even for things like as far as like COPD, like end stage COPD, I don't even know if they really do the medical assistance in dying for that. The only ones that I've seen medical assistance in dying has been terminal cancer. I know there's been like some people with ALS right. have, have done that process. Yeah. But that's really the only circumstances that I've seen it in. I don't know if you met the criteria for medical assistance in dying. You obviously have some shit going on medically. Mm-hmm. I wonder how that would impact whether the body farm wants to take your body or not. So the the little bit, so this is, this article that I found was specifically related to McMaster University, which isn't a body farm site, but just, you know, accepts cadavers for like their medical program and things right. like that. Yep. And interestingly, um, he said the, the really, the big problem is uh, once a donation has been accepted, then technically they have not died of natural causes, right? They've died of medical assistance. Right. So they don't want them? But No, no, but they're listed as whatever, their their reason for death is listed as whatever condition led them to seek medical assistance in dying. Okay. So like can't. Yeah, which could, and I really, I don't know. I've never done a lot of forensics. Um, I don't know how much it would impact it, but I, I would imagine it could at least theoretically mm-hmm. impact what people would find in the body so if they if they say okay uh, laura died of copd and they're looking at you and going hmm how come this copd at this stage was terminal because in fact you actually died of medical assistance and so that copd process was stopped um does that impact findings i don't know would muddy up the waters. It, yeah, and the other th- and and of course, um, you know, again, there's always a lot of regulations, um, you know, with cadavers around how much information is released to the people working with the bodies, right, to maintain you know privacy and dignity and all that stuff. But I, if that's something that like I from a from a completely you know cerebral cognitive level, I get why they do that. On the other hand, I just don't care. Yeah, like if I'm if I'm a medical cadaver. I don't give a shit if the doctors know that, like, my name is Laura and this is where I was. Like, I don't care. What are you going to do with that information? I don't care. Granted, I mean, I'm sure that there are very weird and specific circumstances that have led to that being in place. I wonder about if you've died, like, let's say you die from cancer and let's say you've been undergoing 
chemo or, or even radiation. Mm-hmm. You choose to do the medical assistance in dying, and then you donate your body to a body farm. I wonder how that impacts like like bacteria and like yeah, yeah. body. No I wonder if that changes. This is why I need to work in a body farm. I wonder if it changes like animal predation or if it changes the bacterial process that undergoes or the, or the insect activity that happens. Because, I mean, there are lots of animals and insects that, you know, can smell chemical stuff and like will avoid it. Like you'll never see like a dog drink pop, yeah. which is a good reason why you should never drink pop. Because <laughs> like they just won't touch it. They can smell it and they're just like, new. So I wonder if there's a similar process for people that have been undergoing significant medical treatment, if that changes. I, I'm sure there must be. But again, this is this is the interesting thing, because you think about like in reality, as far as as far as uh, conclusive science goes, even the larger, busier sites that that deal with this sort of forensic mm-hmm. research are really working with very limited data points, yeah. like yeah. incredibly limited data right. points. And there are there are so many tiny variables, you know, besides mm-hmm climate um, which right. is a huge one for sure but yeah climate and biosphere but uh, yeah you know, exactly things like the the various illnesses various medications mm-hmm. people might be on yeah yeah I, all, all sorts of things and and yeah. how like how could you it it would literally at the rate we're going it would literally take hundreds of years possibly thousands to yeah. collect an actually like truly significant number of data points i would imagine mm-hmm. i'm sure that a scientist would listen I would to imagine. Me, i'm totally wrong but no, but I mean, there's just there's just an insane number of variables. Mm-hmm. So in order to be able to cover all those variables, I agree it would take a long time. That being said, obviously more people need to donate their bodies to body. Mm-hmm. I also wonder too. You know, one thing that that occurred to me that that I was I was you know just kind of like hmm, looking at the information that is available about the body farms that are out there, about their intake process, about the um, how the bodies are used, and what fields inter like uh, what fields of research interact with them, you know, during the process, how they're dealt with after, all of all of that stuff. It is clearly very delicate. Uh, they're they're mm, trying to right. handle it in a really um, you know, circumspect and respectful way. You can see that. Which I to- I, I agree with. I don't think we should be disrespectful. But no. also I wonder if the the incredibly fine silk kid gloves mm. that it's being dealt with. Mm. Yeah, actually makes people uh, more jumpy, more nervous, more restricted, want more of that. Because again, we're talking about that discomfort with death, dying, yeah. the whole process, yeah. the, the the fact of, you know, no longer being alive and what that means. Right. And so if, we're, if, if they're being super, super, and I, 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 I could just be totally talking out my ass here, but if they're being super, super, super delicate about it in an attempt right. to be incredibly respectful, are right. they actually just encouraging more of, ooh, ah, uh, death, bleh. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I also think that, I think that their approach, like what I would be looking for as a, <laughs> as a hopeful body farm contestant, <laughs> what I would be hoping, my level of comfort and my level of, of, what I would be looking for would be completely different than, say, my family, right, what right. they would be looking yeah. for. Because I'm pretty, as you can tell, I'm pretty cavalier about, like, I, I don't care. Yeah. I, it, it makes zero difference to me. And it's a body and it's fine. And I don't, I'm not interested in the kid glove thing. Mm-hmm. Do what you got to do with it. It doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't matter to me. I think that, obviously, my family would probably have some different feelings about that. Right. 
that being said, I don't know, because if, like I said, if, if my partner wanted to go to a body farm, I'd be like, okay, yeah. what, like that's, that's maybe it's just a personal difference. I agree that the more that we, I think in our culture, we mythologize death. Oh, totally. Because we hide people from it. We, we don't touch our own dead family members. Someone does that. We don't prepare our own bodies for, for burial or for death. Someone at a mortuary does mm-hmm. that. We don't, people are often even very weird about seeing their dead family members. Mm-hmm. I've had people, not in my immediate family, but in my extended family who have died and their family members haven't wanted to see them. Mm-hmm. Like my, when my sister's mother-in-law died really unexpectedly of a heart attack, they didn't want to see her body. And so I think that the more that we disconnect from it, the more that we sort of push it away, I think the weirder we get about oh, it. Oh, totally. And the weirder we get about it, the weirder we start responding to it and acting about it. And we start creating, uh, in my work, I talk to lots of families that are going through death. And honestly, some of my core advice to them is always just talk about it mm-hmm. and don't try and hide it. And don't try and don't try and hide it from children. Children can tolerate death incredibly well mm-hmm. if you aren't weird about totally. it. And trying to pretend that grandpa's on vacation and that's why he hasn't seen you is very weird and very, very damaging. And the less that we do that, I think the healthier our approach to it is overall. And the healthier our approach is overall, I think the more organ donation, you know, donating your body to science and body farms just kind of makes a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. But that being said, I don't know how to change that in our current culture. Right. Yeah. And I think that COVID, I mean, we're, what are we now, a year into COVID? Yeah. I think that COVID has actually helped that in a bunch of ways because people are realizing we haven't been able to have funerals. We haven't been able, when when COVID first started happening and there was like this huge onslaught in Italy, Italy's a mm-hmm. very Catholic place. There were all of these old people dying. I think their death rate in Italy was like sky high. It was high. crazy for a yeah. while. Yeah. They couldn't, they were, uh, the grave diggers were completely overwhelmed. They could not keep up with the bodies. The bodies weren't getting buried for, for periods of time and they couldn't do um, any sort of funerals. I think that it kind of highlighted for people like, oh no, this is important. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we need these cultural norms, these, these things that we do, these rituals that we do. I think it's really important to grieving. And not necessarily that there's like one specific ritual that's important, but just to have a ritual mm-hmm. that's important. So I think COVID has actually helped that in some way, or at least I'm hopeful that it has. But yeah, the, the more that we separate ourselves from body, even the more that we separate ourselves from providing care to our family members. Yeah. I'm sure as a nurse, you've seen this like weird disconnect between like, well, I can't help my, I can't help my elderly father get dressed or I can't. That's a really recent development. Mm-hmm. Like in the last, 60 years 50 60 70 years and i mean i don't think that we know enough about the long-term societal cultural consequences of that so we're just like going down this road and we have no idea where it's going but it looks like it's going nowhere good (laughs) i think we're doing the same thing with death oh totally i i think that the you know the overall i mean and certainly not everywhere but but a lot of places a lot of developed places Mm -hmm. the overall medicalization and industrialization of 
health, death, mm-hmm. dying, and and all things related to that. Right. The you know it's okay. We'll put it away behind a closed door, and we'll keep it tidy and clean, and mm-hmm. you won't smell anything, and off we go. Is I, I don't I don't think that's helpful. I don't I don't know what I think about what COVID has done for people's thoughts around death and 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 death ritual. I, I certainly think there's definitely impact there. I just haven't really decided what I think that impact is. But yeah, I, I absolutely think, which is which is kind of why the question came up for me with the with the body farms. Like, um, I understand that they really don't want to piss the wrong people off mm-hmm. and not be able to do it at all. But, but you know, in the grand scheme of things, is being so delicate about what they're doing mm-hmm. actually just continuing on this mythos we have that death is something yeah. separate over there that happens to other people, and we just kind of like look over this way, you know. Yeah, no, I I think that it has definitely because I mean the more the more that you dance around something, the weirder it becomes. The more that you don't talk about something, the bigger it becomes. Well, and it's so strange to, I mean, I do understand why death is a big scary topic for people. I I you know on a logical level, I can more or less get it. I don't agree like for yeah. myself, but I so right. I sort of get it. I can empathize. But it is is kind of interesting also though that death is kind of one of those big quasi taboo topics because there are other huge things that happen to people on a very not all the time like death mm-hmm. does, but right. you know divorces, mm-hmm. terrible injuries, mm-hmm. you know, like other big kind of negative right. life-changing things. That we do talk about. Do we? I mean, we more certainly more than death. I think certainly more than death, but I think that we're just as weird about it. Yeah, I suppose. I think that, I mean, probably divorce is getting better, you know, over the last, whatever, 50 years. It's gotten better. But I still think that it's a weird, I still think that we're weird about it. I still think that oftentimes when people come to me about, for counseling, it's not even sometimes it's not even that they have maladaptive thought patterns or or cognitive dissonance or any of those things. Sometimes it's just that they literally have no one in their life that they can talk to about this openly. Right. And so sometimes just the fact that I'm like, yeah, I'll talk about anything. Mm-hmm. Like you want to talk about your divorce, you want to talk about that, you know, there was sexual abuse in your family, you want to talk about domestic violence, like I I'm happy to talk about any of that. Oftentimes when I tell people that I'm a social worker, their immediate thought is that I take people's children away is the one that I get the most. And then I'm like, I don't work with children. (laughs) Also, that's not what social workers do. But when I sort of explain my history that that I've worked in domestic violence or that I've homelessness or I've worked in addictions, every once in a while, I have someone who's really interested and wants to ask a bunch of questions about all that, which I'm happy to answer. But more often than not, people are quite uncomfortable with it. Like they don't actually want to talk about domestic violence and and the impact. They don't actually want to talk about, you know, street level drug abuse or or HIV. They kind of just like, they're like, oh, okay, that's nice. And then they kind of change the subject. So yeah, I mean, I think that we have a similar, I think that our culture is so right now, weirdly invested in trying to avoid anything negative. Mm-hmm. Anything we perceive as negative, we just don't want to talk about. We just try to pretend that like that's not happening, mm-hmm. which is such a bizarre... I'm, I'm not... I haven't put a ton of thought or, or time into thinking about where the hell that comes from. Like, when did that start and why did it start? 
But yeah, I find that we're just trying to avoid basically anything that's negative, anything that makes us sad mm-hmm. or upset or uncomfortable in any way. We're just like, mm, no. Yeah. Which is a terrible way to approach all all of this. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, like you said, the, the more that you shove something away, bury it, pretend it doesn't exist, ignore it, you know, shush it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the bigger it comes. I mean, all, all the scariest scenes in movies are where they don't show you what actually happens. As soon as they show you what actually happens, I mean, don't get me wrong, sometimes it gets really bad, but mm-hmm. you're almost always like, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought. I don't know what mm-hmm. I thought it was, right? but right. I thought it was worse than that. Right. And I think these conversations yeah. are, are the same thing. Don't. It's, yeah. I, it's not going to be fun. It's not all going to be peaches and cream, no. but it's probably not as bad as you think it is if you just right. think, oh, I don't want to. Right. Probably not as bad as you think it is. And probably, I mean, it's not necessarily going to be fun. Yeah, you might be sad or you might upset, might be upset, you might be distressed. But I mean, those are all important emotions to have. I find that it's the same way being backslated to when we first started talking around people not having conversations with their family members about what's going to happen when they die. And it's that same thing where they're like, well, that's un- I'm uncomfortable talking about that or I'm sad when I think about my parents dying, I'm sad. I'm like, right, you should be. Yeah, like yeah. that's a completely normal reaction to thinking about your parents dying. But it doesn't mean that you should never think about that or that you should never push through the sadness in order to have some really important conversations. Mm-hmm. We don't have, similar to the the quality of life conversations, we don't have those conversations with people. And the more that our culture doesn't have those conversations, the more you see the situations where the kids don't know what the dad wanted. And so they just say, we want everything. Right. right. And then the dad is put through like insane medical procedures mm-hmm. that Yes, we can medically do, but ethically, no, we shouldn't. And it's really hard for medical professionals when the kids are saying, I want you to save him. I want you to do everything that you can Mm -hmm. to keep this person here. I mean, how can any medical professional be like, nah, we're not gonna. Like, we're just gonna stop this here. I I, I know people who are incredibly adroit and skilled at having, at at laying those Mm -hmm. boundaries out. And I respect them so much because it is mm. it is a hard. oh that's a hella hard task yeah but but i also i i think part of that is is you know uh, an error in the way we have this system set up the fact that i can say i want a b and c and then as soon as i'm unconscious uh you know you my partner can be like no yeah that's not that's not cool that's not right no. But do you think that that's an issue with our system or do you think that's an issue with who you pick to make your medical decisions for you once you're unconscious? Well, it's it's a little bit of both because the system does not set people up. People don't understand that. You'd be amazed how often people have no idea that their wishes can be ignored once they're out of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you would know, but uh, I'm mm. thinking to the world in general. <laughs> they do not like that conversation when I have it with them. No. So, I, so partly the fact that the system allows for that, partly the fact that we, the system right that we have right now doesn't have those long-term quality of life, what do you mm-hmm. want conversations. Right. Yeah. And so because the system's not having those conversations, people aren't having those conversations amongst themselves nearly as much right. as they could. Yep. Also the idea that the system does not help people figure out who does get to make those decisions. People right. don't understand that process either. So if you haven't made a decision about who's making your choices and, and you know, put some thought into that and made it official, then 
how the default plays out, you know, okay, great. So let's say I'm a single person and, um, you know, I'm suddenly incapacitated. I've never had the conversation with anybody, never done any, anything about it. So now mm-hmm. my, I don't know, my estranged father yep. is my next living relative and gets to make yeah. these decisions, mm-hmm. but maybe is not somebody who has anything to do, to do with me or my life. Yeah, and my next door neighbor who's my best friend would actually be a better person, but I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Right. Because right. the system didn't right. help me out. <laughs> right. Well, and no one, uh, if anybody would have had the opportunity to ask you that you would have said, of course, I, I, you know, I want Mary who lives next door to be my person. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that we do as good of a job to ask about it. And I think that the the risk with not having some of these conversations up front and, and not only having these conversations, but regularly having mm-hmm. them. I mean, honestly, I probably talked, and I mean, granted, I'm in a bizarro, because of my work, this comes up more often than <laughs> maybe should for other people. Honestly, I probably talk about death and dying with my family, like, every six months it comes up. Yeah. For some reason, either either something in my work triggers this for me, or someone in my life passes away or gets diagnosed with something. This honestly comes yeah. up regularly. The risk with it not coming up regularly is, you know... When your when your dad has had a heart attack and he's in the ER, that is not nope. the time to be trying to figure this nope. shit out. And those moments you are just going so hard on adrenaline mm-hmm. and fear. Mm-hmm. And fear is never – I say this to my patients all the time. Being afraid is never a good reason to make decisions. Right. Like the decisions that you make out of fear are terrible decisions unless they're decisions like there's a bear over there. I'm going to run away from that bear. Right, then right. yeah, go with fear <laughs> in that realm. But like other than that, no, yeah, yeah. no. Fear is a terrible reason to make a decision. Yeah. And when you put your family members in that scenario, of course, they're making not great decisions. They're scared yeah. and they don't know what's happening yeah. from a medical standpoint. You know, the average person, I don't think, has a really good understanding of how how brutal oh, medical no. care can be. No, no, no anyone, clue. anyone who I've ever worked with who either A, is a medical professional, like nurse, doctor, et cetera, or has ever worked in like long-term care, every single person I've ever talked to in those scenarios is like, no, no thank you. Yeah. Like they have seen exactly how bad it can yeah. get and they want nothing to do yeah. with it. Which should give everyone else in the world a bit of a pause of like, do I do I want this? Yeah. No? Well then I should probably convey that to someone. Well, you know, and, and speaking to the idea of, of making decisions based out of fear in the in the heat of the moment, mm. you know, change management, accepting change, wrapping your head around something being other than what it is now, mm. even in the most benign circumstances, yeah. is challenging. There are whole <clears throat> departments in major companies dedicated to nothing but change management. And there's a reason for that because it's hard. People don't mm-hmm. do do well with change. So asking your family members to suddenly wrap their heads around a massive change mm-hmm. and possibly making them feel like they're responsible for the outcome that yeah. results from that change, good, bad, or indifferent, mm. is actually kind of cruel in my opinion. Yeah, really cruel. And and not something that you can expect somebody to, to just be like, oh, okay, cool, change, got it, my head's around it. No, no, no. And and asking them, of course, they're going to cling to the idea of you as you were. Not only you as you were, they're gonna they're gonna want the doctor to try and get as close to that as they can. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the general a general 
community member has the understanding of the medical world to be able to understand how unlikely that is. You know, when when you look at success rates of of people who have had their heart stop, like the the chances of that person going back to who they were before, it's like 1%. Like it's so 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 tiny. And I don't think I mean, granted media creates this delusion where people are like, oh, I saw someone on TV exactly. and they had a heart attack. And, say. We are so and they're fine. entertainment based. And yeah. you get the most ridiculous, cartoonish, unlikely scenarios right. thrown at you constantly on mm-hmm. so many forms of media. Yeah. That yeah, that is, you know, whether people mean it to be or not, that right. is their default idea of how it works. Yeah. And um, that's not how it no, works. No, not even remotely. And so, I mean, I think that it's even hard for patients who have been asked, you know, doctors are trying their hardest to convey the most important information and they're trying to do it in a kind way and they're trying to be respectful and, and, you know, the doctors are are really trying their best, but they're trying to convey incredibly complex medical things in a crisis moment. And so much of medicine is is we don't know mm-hmm. we're gonna try this medication and people think you do know people think that medicine is all about answers and definitive yeah. interventions no. and it's nope. so much guesswork and not that doesn't mean anybody's doing anything wrong at no. all but so, you're right so much of it is we don't know yeah they just don't know even when even when patients part of the thing that i do in my job is i, I do a lot of forms and so when i'm doing palliative benefits or when i'm having to fill out paperwork for patients that are terminal, they're like, well, what's their expected? How how long does a doctor think they'll live for? I'm like, he doesn't know. Yeah. Like, how can you, he, he can't predict no, that. No. There's no way, again, back to media where they're like, I have six months to live. I'm like, no doctor tells you you have six months to live. Like, you don't know that. And so patients are expecting a certain certainty that is just not there. And because the certainty isn't there, I find that they default back to, it's going to be fine. And I'm like, statistically, it is not going to be fine. And when I've had conversations with patients, I would say it's probably 50-50. Half the time when I have conversations with patients where I'm like, okay, you have terminal, whatever, you need to get your shit in order. Often the patient is really on board with that. I find that sometimes the family struggles more with that process. Mm -hmm. I'm still surprised when I have patients that are either terminal or that uh, are really old and they get to the end of life and they haven't organized anything. And I'm like, you're 90 years old. Why do you not have a will? Why, looping back to being able to appoint who you want to make medical decisions for you in BC, that's a a process called a representation nine agreement. Why do you not have a rep nine? And I don't, I don't know if it's denial. I don't know if it's that people are scared. I, I'm not sure what the I issue think, is. I honestly think a lot of it is just that people don't know. Like I said, they yeah. do not understand how the system works. They do not um, realize what the default settings are. Right. And and so they it, it, the system really should be that you're opted in. So at, right. at, you know, at you're right. um, on your 18th birthday, part mm-hmm. of turning 18 is you get a fresh driver's license and you sit down with somebody right. and you do a, a code status and a rep nine and a blah, 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 blah. and right. you know every five years when you renew your driver's license, you have to update that. Right. You, you should that be person. opted in by default. Cool. And if you choose not to, then you have to take action to opt out. Right. And I don't remember where does that now with organ donation. Oh, I don't remember where that is. 
I want to say New Zealand for some reason. But but for anything but for anything, you know, truly important that people need to participate in, you yeah. need to opt them in as the default. Because right. when you leave opted out as the default, most mm-hmm. people will stay opted out because most people do not want to take or don't know to take that forward mm-hmm. action to right. opt in. But again, yeah. you know, you talk about like just the way society set up. I um, set myself up with, you know, a will and a power of attorney and mm-hmm. a rep nine in my 30s when I first got into to healthcare. Right. A few years after I started, you know, working full time and kind of went, whoa, okay. I don't this, want any of this. This is what being <laughs> sick looks like. I get it. Right. And at that time, um, and I've, I've mentioned this before, I, I, I designated myself to have no extraordinary interventions if I were to ever, right. uh, you know, if my heart stopped. I don't want compressions. I don't want defibrillations. Mm-hmm. Don't bother intubating me. Right. You can do whatever else. You know, I'm, I'm happy to take medications and surgeries sure. and all those sorts of things, whatever. I, be- I believe in medicine. It, it is helpful. Mm-hmm. But if my, if my heart is stopped, then something really big has happened. Right. And right. I, I'm not willing to risk the mm-hmm. possible morbidity that goes along with coming back from that right maybe that's an extreme reaction i am certainly not saying that should be the position for everybody that was my position so when i did that i was i can't remember what i was i was like 35 or something took that form to my doctor because he has to file it you know um in the system and then had to argue with my doctor to be allowed to file that for myself because he's like but you're young we should do everything blah 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 you know that's that's what everybody else wants i'm like yeah but but i Mm -hmm. I've thought a lot about this. I'm not right. I'm not saying I want to die. No. I'm not saying I'm going to go out and try and get my heart to stop. You yeah. know, you know. Right. but I'm just saying if it happens and especially <laughs> if I'm young, if it happens, that means something really impactful right. has gone right. on. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I don't want to fuck around with that. Right. Um, and it's going to become more applicable as I get older because I'm going to be less able to recover. Mm-hmm. So for me, it works either way. Right. And yeah. I just like, again, because of how the system set up and my doctor was right. very steep in the system, he was a wonderful physician sure. and not trying to, you know, jerk me around or anything, but just you know. we're not set up to have those conversations right. or, or for people to make decisions that are pro acceptance of death. I don't know. Yeah. Like that's a, well, a mouthful, but. No, but pro acceptance of death is, is helpful because the more like I said every healthcare worker I know has that same sort of stance of like I don't want that Mm -hmm. and if if everyone who works in the system that you're going into has said you should don't don't come here don't don't come and stay in extended care Mm -hmm. don't come and like go on into like having a respirator on if everybody who works in that is like no thank you like that's a huge indication that like yeah no I probably don't I probably don't want that either it's like if you ever, I used to, a long time ago, I used to work in the kitchen industry. If the people who work in the kitchen won't eat there, yeah, you yeah. shouldn't be there. Right. Like, don't, don't eat at that restaurant. If you don't see, no, because they know some shit that you don't know. I, I think that because we've, like you said, an industrialized care, people just aren't aware. Like if people saw things more often, more frequently, you know, and, and they do, I work with quite a few patients where their partners are in long-term care. So they have dementia, they're in a dementia ward. So, I mean, those people know, the wives of the, of the people that are there, they know. But by that point, it's too late. By that point, your husband's already in long-term care. And by that point, he can't, what, do, what are you going to do at that point? 
I think that if we went back to taking care of our own family members more and we were more involved in that process, we would have a much clearer picture of how bad it can be. Well, you know, the other thing that happens, because like you say, people don't see it, is mm-hmm. when people do see it, when they when when they oh, have horrified. someone you know, who's sick and they're, they're interacting with the system or whatever, their expectations for what can slash should be done and then their experience of what the reality of that is, they often, I think, feel really, I think sometimes they really feel like they've gotten good care. But I, I often hear a lot of stories where people really feel like they've been shortchanged, ripped mm-hmm. off, jerked yep. around, mistreated as part of their care, mm-hmm. which is, in my opinion, actually not the case. They have been right. given medical care within the system that we have. And it's not pretty and it's not fun and it often doesn't work the way we we hope. And, and, you know, staff are are strung out and overworked and um, don't have a lot of time. And so, so the, the expectations that people go in with when they do encounter the system are, are really skewed through no fault of their own, which then creates more emotions and trauma and upset and, And a lot more, I think, what ifs. So somebody goes through the system and they don't make it out the other side. They do die while they're in care, whatever Mm -hmm. that care may be. I I feel like the fact that people have gone in with these crazy expectations that are not based in the reality of the system and the abilities of the system leaves them going, but someone didn't do enough. But, you know, they didn't try hard enough, like whatever it is, which just leaves them clinging to the Mm -hmm. idea of somebody who's dead should be a lot. Right. Which then completely interrupts their grieving process. If you honestly believe that your grandpa was mistreated or or that he didn't receive the care that he should have received, uh, yeah, your your grieving process is completely skewed because then it's not about grieving the person and the loss of that person. It's about being angry and it's about being mad at the system. And it's about, for some people, they get really litigious or they get, they file complaints or, or whatever. And I mean, then you just can't go through your 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 natural grieving process. It's kind of just paused, and then you just end up with that dragging on for a very 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 long time. And I mean, that's not to say that like long term care or healthcare in general can't be better than what it is. Absolutely, I'm I, I'm, I'm sure. Certainly yeah. not saying that bad care can't happen. Unfortunately, no, of, course. of course. But a lot of what I think people think is quote unquote bad care or not best right. care, yeah, actually really is the best that people can do. They just don't understand what. The possibilities are yeah the systematic stuff yeah and i think it's the same for for dying because we don't talk about it people you know i I haven't talked to people when i talk to them about dying they're sort of like oh well like i'm just gonna like die in my sleep i'm like do you know how often that happens (laughs) not often (laughs) that's like hitting the lottery of dying like yeah it happens it's lovely when it when it does happen but like that's not how most people die and i mean that's like people who tell me that their retirement plan is winning the lottery. I'm like, funny and a terrible plan. Yeah. Yeah. Please don't do that. Yeah. So I, I just think that if people were more open about it, if we talked about it more, if people knew more about how people actually die in hospitals or how their loved ones actually die. When I was like 17, my uncle died of lung cancer. And he, luckily, we lived in a really small town in Alberta. His doctor was phenomenal. And um, would come twice a day and do home visits with him so that he could die at home while at my other uncle's home. And I mean, watching, even as a 17-year-old, watching him die was incredibly eye-opening of like, it's painful. And it's to some extent humiliating when you lose 
bowel control or when you can't stand up to dress yourself or when you can't hold a fork to feed yourself. I was really lucky that I saw a level of care that now that I work in healthcare, I realize is not the standard. But I mean, once you've seen that, it completely changes your perspective on the whole thing. Because if he would have just died, actually, I should say a year after that, a year and a day later, his dad died, my grandpa died of lung cancer. And he died in the hospital. He, he went into the hospital. I never saw him again. I didn't see any of it. Literally, they got a call. My dad went to the hospital. And then they called uh, me and my sister later that morning and said, oh, you don't need to go to school today because your grandpa died today. I didn't see any of it. And if, if that had been my only experience, my perspective would have been very skewed yeah. about what that was actually like. Yeah. 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 God, oh, I, I, I truly hope that I never die in a hospital. Um, if I can possibly have any mm-hmm. say in that. My, yeah. my grandfather died in hospital fairly recently. And it was, I mean, I, I've worked in hospitals. I, I get it. I know, I know how it goes. And all things considered, it was, it was very peaceful and, and it went, it went well. Mm-hmm. My, myself and my grandmother and one of my uncles were at his bedside, you know, at the moment mm-hmm. that he died, which was, I think, good, particularly right. for my grandmother. He was no longer aware of whether anybody was there or not, certainly. But I, I think it was good for my grandmother to actually be there at that moment. Yeah. But that being said, if you took a step back, you know, we were down at the end of a hall in a very old hospital building that, you mm-hmm. know, has been poorly renovated over the years under industrial fluorescent lights in a shared room with another patient on the other side of a curtain while you're waiting for your, you know, grandfather to die. And and, and the, the the staff did absolutely nothing wrong. Like, sure. What what they were working with yeah. That was all they could offer and they absolutely did the best they could with it. And it was t- mm-hmm. truly, totally fine. But right. I'm saying like, if you have the choice, right. no, I don't yeah. want to die laying in a you know blank white box with some stranger mm. laying in bed, you know, in the bed next to me. With some fluorescent light. Uh, yeah, with some fluorescent light and some ugly Ivy. green curtains. <laughs> like, yep. ugh. And, and, yeah. a, and a yucky hospital gown that's not mm-hmm. even like comfortable. <laughs> like, yeah. No, yeah. no. Yeah. So why I think that I'm so, so happy that BC now has the, the medical assistance in dying program just because, you know, if you know you're dying, you can choose something else. Yeah. You can die at home. You can die surrounded by your family members. You can you can just literally not have the hospital experience. Mm-hmm. And that just makes so much difference. Like there's there's so much more comfort. There's so much more care. There's so much more dignity in, in being able to choose it. Yeah, it's it's such a different experience. And it and it can be, you know, somebody dying doesn't have to be this horrific experience. It can it can be beautiful, it can be peaceful, it can be kind. If we ignore it and we have to be drug kicking and screaming, then it gets us totally. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I definitely um, you know, one of the future episodes of this will undoubtedly be probably a lengthy multi-part episode about medical assistance in dying because I think it's mm-hmm. it's, you know, something that needs a lot of conversation. Yeah. But I, I, I'm moving into into a new role professionally. And one small aspect of, of the new role will be the possibility of participating cool. in medical assistance and dying for patients. And I, I I think it is it's something that that is, yeah, it's I'm interested. 
sounds sounds creepy, but interested. I'm interested yeah. to see what that is, what that looks right. like, what it can be, what it can be for people who are walking towards death, eyes mm-hmm. wide open. Yeah, you know, choices in hand, because I've I've never really been around that before, mm. and so that that's a whole sure. perspective that I I think could be really interesting. Yeah. Well, until by the time you, that you do that episode, you'll be an expert. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully by then you'll have had some experiences that you can sort of say this is as a nurse yeah. this is what it's been like and this is what's been different to me or not different to me as a as a healthcare provider i think that would be super interesting yeah. cuz i mean really what it comes down to me is all really it's just about choices mm-hmm. even with even with doing the body farm thing it's about choices you know i want to have as a social worker i spend a, a lot of my time I'll, i've spent a lot of my life working towards helping people that's kind of the whole deal. Mm-hmm. And I would like the choice to be able to continue that after I die in, in whatever form mm-hmm. that is. So it's just a matter of, at this point, logistics. And I'm <laughs> waiting for a body farm to open in BC. So the uptick of this episode is, please put Laura and I on the mailing list so that when you open up your <laughs> Western division of the body farm, yes. we can, uh, we can yes. sign up for donations. <laughs> yes. And I'll be doing... I'll probably be doing the maid program so I can come wherever you need me to come yeah, yeah. to do this I can process. Time this however you yeah. want. <laughs> Literally. Um, I mean, I, unless you have anything else that you wanted to, to address no, specifically, I think that kind of really covers things. I, I do like to wrap up with, uh, with one question. And I, I really encourage you to take the question um, however you want and, and go wherever you feel like with, with the answer. If you had to describe or or what does the idea of a good death mean to you? I think similar to what you had said, where if you can walk towards death with your eyes wide open and, and having choice, having some control, having dignity, you know, I don't want... In my work, I've worked with several ALS patients. Mm-hmm. The thought of my body betraying me to the point that you're on a ventilator laying in a bed and you can't even communicate like, I'm cold, turn the heat up, or I don't want to watch Dr. Phil, or like, I hate this person, tell them to get out. Yeah, Not being able to communicate, I think is, is like literally my nightmare of like, I, for the love of God, I just don't want that. And so the, the flip side of that nightmare is, being able to make choices, being able to decide how and when and where I die. And and obviously, you know, that might not be something I get. I, I might get crushed by a bus tomorrow when I'm driving somewhere mm-hmm. and that, that choice might be taken away from me, which if, if it's taken away from me, then so be it. Hopefully I don't even see the bus coming. But if I do have a choice, I want to make that choice thoughtfully. Right. And I want to be able to convey that to my family because I also... I don't want my family to be a horrific experience for my kids, for my loved ones, because it doesn't, it really, really doesn't have to be, yeah. you know, it can be something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I think, I think that, you know, there is, there is a, a real distinction between sadness or grief mm-hmm. and trauma. Oh, yeah. Very and I different. think that part of our fear of death and talking about death and dealing with death and, and facing mm-hmm. it and thinking about it is that we are conflating trauma with mm-hmm. grief. Right. Because I think you're right. I think that, I mean, grief is not fun, but it's no. not, it's not going to end you. No. 
And it's something that when um when my partner's grandpa died, he died of liver cancer, so we knew he was dying. And he had a very short illness. Like he was diagnosed in December, he died in January. Wow. When he was diagnosed, he was bright yellow. Oh. Like it looked like someone had it looked okay. like someone had colored him with a highlight on it. So like it was pretty frigging obvious to even something was wrong. That something was wrong. When he died for instead of having like a, a sort of conventional northern Alberta funeral with egg salad sandwiches and a legion, he his family did like a family camp out. So they waited. He died in January. They waited till July. And the whole family came, camped out for a weekend, barbecued, and everybody, you know, talked about their favorite memories of him. They talked about the good things. They also talked about the bad things. They talked about how he had a temper. They right, talked right. about, you know, how he would never wear gloves when he was fixing shit. And that caused a whole bunch of issues with his hands. <laughs> they, t- they talked about the times. They talked about him as a, as a whole person. Yeah. They didn't try and gloss over who he was or, or he had done some shitty things. Everyone's done some shitty things. Mm-hmm. And it was just such a completely different experience. They were grieving, but it wasn't all sadness. Right. Yeah, there was sadness, but there was also laughter and smiles and pictures. And yeah, they, they grieved him as a whole imperfect human being, mm-hmm. which was, yeah, something to aspire to that I don't want when I die I don't want people to pretend that I'm a saint because I've done some shitty things. Shit, Everyone I already has. applied for canonization. Oh yeah, how that? How? <laughs> what was their? What was their response back? Uh, there was some laughter on the other end of the phone <laughs> yeah, line. Yeah. They just sent you a letter back that says no <laughs> exclamation point. Yeah, I think that when we, you know, when we gloss over who who people were when they were living, I think that we do them a disservice. I think that. And and I've had this experience when I've had shitty family members die that I don't particularly like. And then after they die, everyone just talks about them like they never did anything wrong. And the whole time you're looking around at their funeral, like, are we talking about the same <laughs> guy? Because, like, he was terrible. Yeah. I think we do people a disservice when we do that. Yeah. And I think we do people a disservice when we try to ignore the fact that we're all going to die. Yeah. You know, that's it's a bizarre cultural thing. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, Do you have anything to plug? Any books, podcasts, lectures? I got nothing. Okay. All right. It was worth a shot. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks anyway. Thank you.